You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 43. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded all the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plots became known to Saul. Then they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they, not, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him in to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenist, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there and among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which, trans, which translated means Dorcas. So she full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt, and knelt down and prayed, and turned to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. 
Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. How firm a foundation you have given us to build our lives and our church upon. So now, Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith to build on this foundation. What more can you say than to us than you have already said? So God, we pray that we might understand and trust in these things that we have heard, and now that we might begin to understand even more. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after. Uh, we always talk about how really nothing really changes from New Year's Eve to New Year's Day, from like one year to the next, from 2020 to 2021. And of course, with all of the caveats that we uh, have given, thinking through the entire season of Advent, of not putting our hopes in uh, vaccines and uh, new things with a new year. Well, even with all those caveats, there, there's been a bit of a, a new pep in my step the last couple of weeks. Uh, despite the virus still spreading and still definitely affecting uh, many of you and certainly our society, vaccines are rolling out. Uh, I have no idea how, but I got a call saying I get a vaccine on Wednesday. So I'm going to do that. I know many of you already have gotten one dose or two. Um, and, and then just like singing with you all these last three Sundays. It's just carrying over into my week, just being with you, hearing you sing. Uh, and I am definitely, definitely naively optimistic, um, but I'm nevertheless optimistic that we can begin to turn a new leaf towards like slowly cultivating charitable and more charitable public and political discourse. That's like not saying anything at all about former or, president or present presidents, but that perhaps we might begin to like move toward a more neighborly understanding of one another as Americans, uh, something that's been eroding now for decades. But maybe like coming out of this almost like wartime reality of this pandemic, uh, I've got a little optimism. I know, naive. Uh, but mostly to echo one seminary professor that I read this week, we Christians are going to have so many new kinds of opportunities to model Christ to the world in the coming days. I don't know what form this should take in each situation, but God has called us to this task in this time. Brothers and sisters, let's do this. Like I said, pep in my step. So in, throughout even, despite all of the darkness around, uh, I'm encouraged these days, and I hope that we all are together. Well, as we've considered the past three weeks, beginning with the Samaritans in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, and then with the Ethiopian, and then with Saul, God was beginning profound, dynamic change in both individuals and even in the world. And like, even just like I said a second ago, like a, the turning a new leaf metaphor is almost too tame of what is going on here in the book of Acts. Through the work of Christ and by the power of the Spirit, the metaphor that Jesus gives to Nicodemus of individuals and of the church is that of birth, of new birth. The triune God here in the book of Acts is birthing the church, or the language of Ezekiel 37, that he is bringing dead bones to life. Or as we sang earlier, he's turning bones into bodies, graves into gardens. The book of Acts, or as we've called it in the very first introductory sermon, is maybe better called the Acts of Jesus by his Spirit, through his church, 
but that's not very pithy, uh, is a book of birth and rebirth. It is a story of God bringing change and new life. And that's exactly what we're going to see tonight in the second half of chapter 9, new life. We're going to fill in the rest of Saul's story and his time in Damascus, and then moving beyond that, surprisingly, uh, Saul doesn't really again take center stage in the book of Acts until again in chapter 13. Toward the end of chapter 9, Peter comes back into view, where Luke is going to focus most of the narrative on him throughout chapter 12. So as these few chapters here are a bit of an overlap from Peter to Paul, we'll use this sermon to do the same. And of course, the spotlight, if we're ever narrowing the spotlight in on a particular character in the book of Acts, the spotlight is never on that character, is it? The spotlight is never on Peter or Paul, but on Jesus. So we're going to divide these two characters into the two halves of our sermon this evening. First, thinking through the new life of Saul, and then secondly, not the new life of Peter, but secondly, the new life of the church. The church, not Peter, since Peter has already experienced this new life. And so now it is this new resurrection life that is flowing out of Peter and into the church. So the new life of Saul, the new life of the church. First of all, let's get back to Damascus. The last time we found Saul, thinking through this new life of Saul, uh, he had been healed of his blindness by Ananias. He was baptized. He was strengthened. He was already coming from death to life. And then we find him in Damascus proclaiming and preaching that in the Jewish synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is significant, isn't it? At the beginning of the chapter, what was Saul's strategy? As he departed from Jerusalem, what was Saul's strategy for dealing with his so-called opponents, for his enemies? What was his strategy? What was his game plan? Once he was getting to Damascus, what was he going to do? Kill them all. Overwhelm his opponents with sheer power. And yet, now what's his strategy? to preach, to preach that Christ is king. It's not that he has completely stopped using weapons, he's just using different ones. He has perhaps realized what he would later write in Ephesians 6, that he is not fighting or wrestling, he has now realized. He's not fighting or wrestling against flesh and blood, but he is fighting and wrestling against cosmic powers and spiritual rulers. The fight that he is fighting is not a physical one, but a spiritual one. That the sword to be used in this fight is not a physical sword, but the sword of the Spirit, which is what? What does he call the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6? The Word of God. And that is exactly the sword that he picks up and begins wielding, not to kill his enemies, but to persuade them, not to hate them, but to love them. He preaches that Jesus is the Son of God. Not that he is the physical offspring of Yahweh, that would be blasphemous, but in working through consistently Jewish categories, Jesus is the Psalm 2 Son of God, the anointed and the appointed King of the nations, ruling on behalf of the Father. We've mentioned this before and thought through this before, but when we talk about sons and daughters, we are normally thinking about little kids. A son is someone who's a little kid with very little responsibility. But In ancient cultures, certainly in this time, so much of being a son was as an adult son to rule and to work on on behalf in doing the business of the father. 
And just as the people of Israel itself are often collectively throughout the Old Testament called the Son of God, God's Son, Jesus is the obedient people of God. He is the Son that would live in covenant with the Father in all righteousness and therefore bring righteous blessing to the entire world. Verse 22 also tells us that Saul was preaching that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Son of God and he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, the anointed, the promised one of God. And again, Jews of this day would have already had theological and mental shelf space for this kind of language. The the coming one who was both sent by God and who was God. In addition to the appearances of the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament narratives, the words of the prophets themselves are littered with almost like schizophrenic descriptions. Descriptions of the son of David on the one hand, and yet then at the same time of Yahweh. Like, which is it the prophets are looking for? Is, it, is, the, is, the, is there one coming who is the kingly son of David, or is God himself coming? Yes! And all of this is what Saul is preaching, that the Messiah has come. He was crucified and resurrected and now reigns in glory. He is God. Worship him. Live your lives in light of this reality. Swear your allegiance to him as your true and right and good king. You cannot ignore this reality of his resurrection. What must your life now do and mean in front of this reality? This is what Saul is preaching. But the astounding part of all of this that Saul is preaching is that The people are amazed. Why? Because they ask in verse 21, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Seriously, like this is Darth Vader. Come now. And he is now taken off his mask and he is now preaching against the empire. Like this doesn't make any sense. He is gathering and building, growing the rebel alliance. The people don't understand at all. He was killing us, like yesterday. This doesn't make any sense. And even more than that, we know that the Emperor Palpatine has sent him to our lonely, our lowly planet of Lothal or something to kill us all. It doesn't make any sense. The chief priest had sent him here to do this work. And now he's, unbeknownst to us, like just completely reversed course. This is monumental change. Saul is alive where he was once dead. I was blind, but now I see. See who Jesus actually is. Now, two quick things about Saul before we move on. One, if you're reading through Acts 9, it seems like Paul preaches, or Saul preaches in Damascus for a few days, then he escapes out of there in a basket, and then he goes to Jerusalem. But Saul tells us in Galatians 1 that at some point in this time in Damascus, he went away into Arabia. He went to the desert to seemingly study the Old Testament scriptures. For three years, he tells us in Galatians 1. Everything that he thought about Jesus and his people, everything he thought that was blasphemy is now true. He's come to realize and understand this. So he wanted to spend a few very intense years, essentially of theological education, in light of Jesus of Nazareth being the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises. He had taught wrong before, Saul had. 
So he wanted to make sure that he would not again. He realized the seriousness and the gravity of teaching the scriptures. So he went away into the desert for three years. And Luke just fast forwards through all of that here in Acts 9. There's not even a mention of it. Not because he's trying to deceive us, but he's just doing what all storytellers have to do. You have to make decisions on what and how much to tell. Uh, He didn't tell us like every morning that Saul woke up what Saul had for breakfast or something. He's making editorial narrative decisions. He isn't telling us like what the conversations were actually like in the synagogues, just that Saul is confounding the people there. Luke only has so much room on the scroll. They're expensive. It's expensive work, uh, so he has to make decisions. But he, Saul goes away for three years here before he comes back to Damascus and is lowered in the basket. Second, though, does Saul's name get changed to Paul? A few times I've already called him Paul. Uh, many, if not most of us, assume that his name actually got changed on the road to Damascus. I think we think that mostly from other name change stories in the Bible. Think of Abram and Abraham and his wife, Sarai and Sarah. Uh, the angel of the Lord tells, you were Jacob, but now you are Israel. Even if it's not an explicit name change, Jesus tells Simon that now he is Peter. He is rock. And so we've probably heard something. We've heard something like, you know, Saul the persecutor now encounters Jesus and becomes Paul the apostle. Such is the dramatic and dynamic change that God brings when he makes someone into a new creation. He gives them an altogether new identity. But as one professor says about this and other texts, we are deriving the right doctrine from the wrong text. That's not what happens here. Saul will still be called Saul 11 more times in the book of Acts after his Damascus Road experience. The Holy Spirit himself will tell the apostles in Acts 13 to set aside Barnabas and Saul. And so really what's going on is explained in verse 9 of chapter 13, where Luke writes, But Saul, who was also called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul is a Hebrew Jewish name, and Paul, or Paulus, is a Latin name, is a Roman name. So whenever Paulus is going to the nations, he just makes it easier on the people around, or people around him to just call him by a Latin name, a commonly used name, just like we other people do. Joseph called Barnabas, Thomas called Didymus, even later in this chapter, Tabitha called Dorcas. So while less common these days, uh, it's perhaps like, I don't know, some German guy moves to the United States from Germany, and his name in German is Wilhelm, and then when he get, arrives on the shores here, he introduces himself as William, or Juan from Guatemala moves here, and he introduces himself as John. That's all that's happening. So the only reason I bring up any of this is that God's word is powerful enough. The dynamic change of conversion and rebirth that Saul or Paulus experiences is miraculous enough. Uh, We don't have to come up with like some super deep spiritual nugget that might ultimately one day mislead folks when they realize that that's actually not what happened or it's not what happened. So Saul, Paul, call him whatever you want. If you're with a bunch of Hebrew speakers, call him Saul. If you're with a bunch of Latin speakers, call him Paul. It doesn't matter. Okay, back to Saul though in Damascus. Luke tells us in verse 22 that Saul increased all the more in strength, similar to the way that he was described in verse 19, when he had food and was strengthened physically. Only here, he is increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He's growing in strength in his preaching. 
in his pointing to Jesus. Growing in strength, proving that Jesus was the Christ, who incidentally was also strengthened by the Spirit and also confounded the Jewish leaders. In Saul's union with Jesus, he is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And then also, perhaps not surprisingly, receiving similar treatment as Jesus did. In verse 23, we find out that after days had passed, maybe three years of days of Saul being in Samaria, we find out that the Jews plotted to kill him. But in a scene reminiscent of the spies at Jericho or one of David's many escapes from King Saul, this Saul escapes by a basket lowered through the city walls, and he's gone. That's it. He's gone from Damascus. He was never intended to remain in Damascus. The gospel was never intended to find its end here, nor was Saul's ministry. He was intended to go to the entire world. The entire world needs to hear that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ, and no opponents nor no city walls can contain it. So he heads back to Jerusalem to join the disciples. Apparently, without his leadership in Jerusalem, uh, the persecution of the church had died down a bit because many of the same disciples are back there. They're living there again. But when Saul returns, so does their fear. Like it had been three years since Saul had left to, to, to Damascus and perhaps the Christians there, they just never heard of him again. Perhaps they thought, oh, well, the persecution that Saul had been whipping up in this city three years ago, I guess it ended with him. But oh shoot, Darth Vader's back. But Barnabas, whom we first met in chapter 4, he had heard about his encounter, Saul's encounter with Jesus on the road three years ago, and he had heard about his bold preaching in Damascus. So similarly to the way that Ananias pushed through his fear of Saul, pushed through his suspicion, Barnabas is willing to actually look bad in front of his friends. He's willing to be wrong if it means extending warmth and welcoming hospitality to someone who is not like them. And through this, through Barnabas' introduction to the other apostles, Paul tells us in Galatians 1 that he then spends 15 days with Peter, just the two of them. And can you imagine the conversations that these two new brothers would have had over these two weeks? Everything that Saul had been piecing together from the Old Testament scriptures over the past three years, now Peter just puts it in a box, ties it up, and gives it to the the whole thing. Peter would have undoubtedly told Paul about the Sermon on the Mount teaching. He would have told him about how Jesus had taught and then instituted the Lord's Supper on the night that he was betrayed. He would have heard about and told Paul about when he denied Jesus three times, on the night that he was betrayed. And then Jesus came to him in grace three times. And Saul, Paul, he would have probably reflected, remembered the grace that Jesus had shown him. And these two new brothers would have thought, grace upon grace upon grace that both of us have experienced and encountered from the Lord Jesus. When I was imagining these initial conversations of these two new brothers this week, I couldn't help but think of When C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Four Loves, when Lewis writes, friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have common insight or interest or even taste, which the others do not share. 
and which, till that moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. Now, of course, Peter knows plenty of others. He's not the only Christian. And Saul had certainly met other Christians in Damascus. But these two men who had just experienced the overwhelming grace and kindness and restorative compassion of the Lord Jesus, as they shared each other's stories, would have just been like, what? You too? I thought I was the only worst of the worst who had denied Jesus. And couldn't we have all said the same same to one another? To have experienced the kindness of Christ. And so Saul starts then doing in Jerusalem exactly what he had been doing in Damascus, wielding the sword of the Spirit, speaking and disputing with the teachers here, the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. And just like in Damascus, they began to plot to kill him. So the disciples, they send him off to Caesarea, a coastal town north on the way to Saul's hometown of Tarsus, modern-day Turkey, where we won't hear from Saul again until Barnabas goes back to Tarsus to get him in chapter 11. We'll get there. But unlike the last time Saul had left this city, had walked out of this city on a mission, the last time he had left this city burning and in chaos. Now he is leaving it in peace. In verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church, the word, it's multiplying. Saul is reborn, and the resurrection life of Christ is flowing through him, creating little Garden of Eden pockets behind him, wherever he goes, bringing pockets of peace that comes from knowing and walking with God. This new creation, new life of the church that Saul is leaving behind is now where we'll turn our attention after the new life of Saul. Now, secondly, the new life of the church In the rest of this chapter, Luke is going to give us two pretty quick healing stories that are mostly, they're they're important in and of themselves, and we've got a lot to think about through them, but mostly these are, I think, kind of an on-ramp, an on-ramp to next week's text of chapter 10, which is one of the most pivotal turning points, not just in the book of Acts, but actually one of the most pivotal turning points in the whole history of God's interaction, of his redemption of people, of humanity. So let's accelerate here. Let's get up on the on-ramp. Let's take note of what we're doing here on the on-ramp, but mostly pick up enough speed so that we can safely navigate the highway of next week. In verse 32, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Lydda is a village outside of Jerusalem on its way up to the north and the west, close to the the Mediterranean Sea. He's leaving Jerusalem. The gospel's going out, where he finds a man named Aeneas. And perhaps as we read Acts chapter 9, we just blow right through it. Perhaps one or two of us or a handful of us might have a few bells starting to ring in our heads as we hear this name, Aeneas. But I guarantee you, Every single person who knew Aeneas and every single one of these early readers of Luke's account here in Acts would have had not just 
Little bells going off, but gongs clanging. For Aeneas is the son of Venus, the son of Aphrodite, the mythical founder of Rome. I'm not saying that this guy here is the mythical founder of Rome, the son of Aphrodite or something, but he is certainly named after him. Here is a guy living outside of Jerusalem with a Roman name, a Roman hero's name. So either, we've got two options. Either he is not Jewish, he's someone who's come close to Jerusalem with his Roman name, or he is a Jewish guy named after a Roman hero. But this guy, this Roman hero, is paralyzed. He is completely unable to care for himself, to provide for himself. He is bedridden. He cannot move. Similarly to the lame man healed by Peter and John in Acts 3, there isn't any commendation of this man's faith. He isn't coming to Peter saying, heal me for I believe in the Lord Jesus or anything like that. But Peter, a man so united with Jesus, is just walking by and seemingly just sees a guy. Sees a guy who is experiencing the physical wreckage of the fall and he has compassion on him. And what does Peter tell him? He says, Jesus Christ heals you. I'm sorry, what? Uh, Jesus, the rabbi from Nazareth, who I heard got crucified down in Jerusalem a few months ago? Yes. Yes. And not just like some power that he bestowed on me or something, Peter's saying, but Jesus Christ now presently heals you. Jesus, the one crucified, but that the cross and the tomb could not hold him. Now pouring out of the tomb came a new creation reality, the reversal of the fall, the forgiveness of, the, of sins, peace with God, the first day of moving toward a new Eden. That Jesus, who reigns and rules now from heaven, heals you. And Aeneas, the helpless founder of Rome, stands up and walks. This is going somewhere. The story is going somewhere. If you weren't with us in October, I can't recommend any more highly that you go back this week and find Kyle Stevens' sermon from October of Thinking Through Acts 3. Uh, that sermon is an incredibly personal and helpful um, exploration. A sermon helping us think through a similar healing, but helping us think through these miracles, these kinds of miracles. Questions like, should we, could we? expect to experience or encounter or expect similar miracles today. But that sermon is also so helpful in helping remind us and point us that the point of all of these early healings by Jesus and his apostles were to prove or to validate Jesus's greater healing power. This is easy. Fixing someone's legs is actually easy for Jesus. Fixing their heart fixing their soul, bringing new life, forgiving sin, and transforming people into altogether new creations of God, that is the hard part. All of these miracles are pointing to the new life that came pouring out of a hole in the ground in Jerusalem. That will, now with this Aeneas breadcrumb here, 
move all the way to the halls of power in Rome itself. But we're not to Rome yet, and the new life is still spreading out from the hole in the ground. And so it seems then that we are now even more specifically pointing to new life, not just healed legs, but new life altogether with Tabitha or Dorcas. Unlike Aeneas, Luke tells us that she was a disciple. She was, uh, she was with the disciples. She was full of good works, of charity, and she had become ill and she had died. So some of the Christians who had heard that Peter was in nearby Lydda, they ran to Lydda to get Peter and to ask him to hurry to Joppa. And would we do this? I don't know that if I heard, uh, I don't know, some, some particularly effective and persuasive pastor or something was at a nearby town and one of my close friends had d- just died that I would like get in my car and drive to him to ask him to come here. And yet I think in stories like this, we can just assume that these like ancient, ancient superstitious people lived in a world where either people were miraculously healed or resurrected all the time, or they kind of just expected things to happen like that all the time. But that's certainly not the case. They knew, just like us, that when people die, they died. In fact, in a world where nearly every single parent would have experienced like one or two or likely multiple deaths of their children, where families would care for the dead bodies of parents or family members, or their wives who died in childbirth. They would have cared for these bodies in their very own houses. They were likely much more acquainted with the final reality of death than even we are. Let's perhaps remove this assumption that these are superstitious, ancient, dumb folks. They They knew death far more than we do. But these Christians in Joppa had heard of the specific resurrection power of Jesus, now present in his deputized apostles. So they have prepared Tabitha or Dorcas's body for Peter's coming. And if this story sounds familiar, it should. Perhaps as you were hearing Leah read this story, you're like, I know this story. Jesus has done this in the Gospels. There are so many similarities to the way that Jesus brought Jairus's daughter back from the dead in her house. There are mourning widows outside, the very command to arise, the opening eyes and standing up. Even Tabitha here, even her name is just one letter removed from the Aramaic word that Mark gives us when Jesus says Talitha, meaning little girl, that Jesus speaks to the little girl as he tells her, little girl, Talitha, arise. But the more we become knowledgeably literate readers of the whole Bible, we'll actually realize and understand that The story of Jesus bringing Jairus' daughter back from the dead is not in a vacuum either. Matthew and Mark and Luke are all making very not-so-subtle allusions to when Elisha, the prophet in 1 Kings, brought the Shunammite's son back to life in 2 Kings 4. Now, throughout the Gospels, in the Gospel accounts, the Gospel writers are setting up, I think, John the Baptist as like this Elijah-like figure, an Elijah-like prophet who then gives way to the Elisha-like figure of Jesus, who has a far greater ministry and power. In Acts, in this account here, in Acts, Luke is either 
having the disciples merely continue on in the Elisha-like ministry of bringing people back from the dead, or even now, the Elijah-like Jesus is giving way to the Elisha-like church, who has an even greater ministry, an even greater power from God. As even Jesus told them they would in John 14, that they will also do the works that I do and greater works than these because I am going away to the Father. Either way, when Peter says her name and he tells her to arise, Jesus himself breathes his resurrection life into her. And just as he did in the tomb on Easter Sunday, she opens her eyes, she sits up, and she walks. She is brought to new life. Now, you realize, if you are a Christian, if you have come to faith in Christ, come to the cross of Christ as your only means of salvation, of having your sins forgiven, of having peace with God, then you have had no less of a miraculous resurrection. The resurrection life of Christ is also yours that you might both live and experience. Augustine once wrote that if there's a present reality of resurrection life, it's only because the Son has life. He has that by which believers may live. If there is any resurrection power that you have, it's because Jesus has it and he's given it to you. And so as we've often thought about here together, just as when the angels on Easter morning, they're sitting on the top of the stone, sitting on either side of the empty tomb. And when the women come and ask, or looking for Jesus, they ask them, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is risen. The same can be said of you. If you are united to Christ, when the evil one of sin and death comes prowling around his cemetery of death to make sure that his corpses are all still properly buried in their right places, the angels sit on your headstone, sitting on top of an empty grave, asking the evil one, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is risen. He has been united to Christ. Come now with your temptation power. Come now and do your worst. Come now with your return or your calls to return to the death. She is risen. She belongs to Jesus. He is a new creation in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I am often so uh, heavily encumbered by what you sometimes share with me of your temptations in sin, of the siren calls to return to the grave. And so all I can do is both encourage you and then pray that you might remember that you are risen in Christ, that you are united to him and that you would remember this reality, that you belong to Jesus and that you are no longer dead but alive, that you are no longer blind but can now see. And so just as we've sung and thought about so much through the beginning and throughout the songs and the professions, the confessions that we've uh, said out loud together, the Lord indeed will call us through deep waters. And sometimes, in fact, most times, 
We will not experience this kind of physically miraculous power that Aeneas and that Tabitha have experienced. And yet God has given us a greater miracle in his son. And he has brought us to a greater resurrection than even Tabitha has experienced if we are united in Christ. Do you know this resurrection? Perhaps you're joining us this evening and you haven't, you're you're actually not sure, I'm actually not sure if I have come from the grave. I do not have this kind of confidence to say that I am risen with Christ, that I do belong to him, that I have come to the cross of Christ and had my sins forgiven. Let this be the day. Come to life today. Arise in him and have your eyes opened. And yet, going back to our mental word picture, perhaps the angels sitting on your gravestone, the evil one prowling about to make sure you're there, disappointingly find out that you are risen. What's more, the angels might say, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? She is risen. What's more than that? She's actually walking around the cemetery asking people to come to life with her, commanding others to arise, to wake up and to walk in the resurrection power of Jesus as his people, his body, his church. This is the commission that Jesus himself has given to us to speak on his behalf, to utter his resurrection power to others, that he might make us his people. Or back to the book of Ephesians, in Jesus' descension to the grave, to his ascension back to heaven, he is now leading a whole host of captives out of the cemetery. An entire army of former slaves of death who are now alive and united to their risen king, following him in life in gracious humility, in compassionate love, knowing that their king and his kingdom are not of this world, not of this age. We people of Christ really do find ourselves now between two worlds, between two ages, still experiencing and feeling and witnessing and seeing the age of death, the age of rebellion, the age of sin. And even in ourselves, still experiencing this transition from death to life. As disappointing as it is, the Spirit just does not give us a sanctification pill in which all is made right and we love God and we love others perfectly. But day to day, he makes us more like himself, growing more and more into Jesus because we are already united to him fully. And if we are truly following him, leaving more and more pockets of peace behind us wherever we go, leaving more and more life where there once was death, and we leave this kind of peace wherever we go. I just read this from Shai Lin this week, that he says that if we are followers of Christ, those who listen to us talk should be able to detect a Christian spirit in the way that we communicate. That is humility, kindness, gentleness, patience, even if they disagree with our particular positions. Could that be said of us? Could that be said of us individually and as a church? That if even people disagree with us, and the world will, can they still detect a Christian spirit about the way in which we speak, the way in which we interact? That we are walking around with this little orb of Eden around us, not because of any innate holiness on our behalf, on our, on our own part, some sort of Uh, condescending holiness that we make people feel bad about, 
but that is inviting and that is warm and that is kind and patient. We are people of the King, being led by Him miraculously to glory. So Christian, stick close to Him. You are alive in Him and yet prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I'm alive and yet I am so tempted to return to death. So here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Jesus is moving his people along to glory. And in these early chapters of Acts, he is moving his people and he is moving human history along. Aeneas, the founder of Rome, he is brought to life. This is a grand and sweeping story. And verse 43 gives us a little teaser for where this thing is headed next week in chapter 10. Verse 43, he stayed in Joppa, Peter, for many days with one Simon, a tanner, someone who killed a bunch of animals, skinned them, hided them. Hided them, Eric? Past tense of two, I don't know, whatever. Uh, A bunch of death Peter is hanging out with in this guy's house. And this is where he's staying, and this is where the story is going. So read this chapter a whole bunch this week. There's a whole lot in it, and I think the plan is to do the whole chapter next week. It's just really hard to break up. So that's the plan, where we are going to meet back here next week to place ourselves under God's Word and to place ourselves under, as what I've once heard called, a blanket of bacon. And that's what we're doing next week, putting ourselves under a blanket of bacon. It sounds delicious, and I'm ready for it. So let's pray that God would help us this week. God, we pray that you might remind us of our union with Christ, that knowing him and his resurrection power, that we might press forward, we might strain forward to know him even more, to experience your grace and kindness. Father, help us to know and to realize and remember the ways in which we so flippantly and carelessly deny you And yet you are so faithful to us, overwhelming us with kindness and grace, seating us now even with Christ in the heavenly places. And we pray for those who are with us tonight who are perhaps still um, bedridden, paralyzed, unable to move, scales on their eyes, perhaps even more specifically, dead in their sins and their trespasses. We pray that by your spirit, by the encouraging words of your people, through your word, that you might bring life, that those who are with us tonight who are now dead might arise in Christ. Lord, help us to know you, help us to trust you, help us to remember what you have done for us in Christ, that you might bring us to glory in the future. It is to this end that we look, It is to this end that we hope and pray. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.